So 2 Corinthians continues to be a very interesting book to read and study. And let me say this, that it's one thing to read the scripture to yourself. It's something very different to read aloud. And on top of that, to teach it. And therefore, what I want to continue to do is just have a quick recap at the beginning of each uh, Lord's Day service. In fact, a few days ago, I sat down to work out how much time we spent thus far. And chapters one to four run to just over four and a half hours. So on average, an hour and 10 minutes per chapter. And yet, if you were to sit down, if you were to glance, if you were to skim through Second Corinthians, you may appear or you may be of the view that at first glance, there's not much material here. And yet there's a lot of material. From chapter 3, verse 14, it speaks about their minds, being the Jews, were blinded. For until this day, around the life of the Apostle Paul, remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ, i.e. the new birth. From uh, chapter 4, 3 and 4, but if our gospel be hid the gospel of the grace of God, it is here to them that are lost. In reference to the Jews, chapter 3, in reference to the Gentiles. For here and now, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So 3, 14, harmonize it with 4, 3 and 4, and you get a clear picture that Satan is responsible for blinding the minds of many people. And here we are 2,000 years later, or just around 2,000 years later, and the devil is still very busy going around deceiving people. Also, Paul would have to reiterate his credentials time after time. He was up against legalists, law keepers, grace deniers, Sabbath keepers. And yes, I'm afraid such people are still around today. And that scripture from uh, Acts 20, verses 28 to 31, always come to my mind about those that will come from within, devour the flock. And Jesus spoke about such people from Matthew chapter 7. Peter also speaks about such people making merchandise off the backs of Christian people, which I will further discuss later today, if time allows. But if you were just to sit down and just glance through first or second Corinthians, you would miss so much material because the chances are you would think that if you're not a ministry, if you're not a minister, that second Corinthians isn't for you. But the truth is that we are all ministers of the Lord. We are a royal priesthood. We were told to be about our father's business in season and out of season. From three one, he says this. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Contrast that to uh, 4.2. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying this, that we, Paul, we Peter, we James, we John, we the apostles are as transparent as can be, are as honest as can be, are sincere, are genuine, will uphold the gospel of the grace of God, will take a stand for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Contrast that to the Jews that wouldn't believe on Jesus, to the 
Judaizers, to those that were seeking to undermine what Paul was trying to get across. Such people would uh, pen the Talmud. Such people would say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. That his mother gave birth to Jesus thanks to a Roman soldier. And I won't go into great detail. There's a war going on. There's a war going on concerning the minds of so many people. And that's why it's imperative to get saved as soon as you can. And once you are saved, to read the scriptures and, if you can, share the gospel. But for me, if I was to attempt to sum up thus far what we've looked at over the last several Sundays, and like I say, time has covered, or the time spent so far is running to around four and a half hours, I would say this, that chapters one and two deal with suffering, deal with being able to relate to those that are also suffering being able to relate to such people. But here's the problem. You may come across somebody from chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, who has sinned, and I'll discuss sin further, has repented, and yes, you can always repent, and no, it's never too late, and yet, although they have repented, although they have come clean, although they have wanted to be restored back into fellowship with the Lord, there are groups of people There are pockets of people, self-righteous goody-two-shoes that are not willing to forgive such a person. And you will meet such people if you spend any amount of time with certain groups of people that would have you believe that they don't sin, have never sinned, and therefore they can't relate to somebody who has sinned and therefore is unable to forgive. But like I say, Chapter 2, 10, 11 speaks about somebody who has repented and you are told, you are commanded. And yes, there are commandments for the child of God, living under the gospel of the grace of God, to forgive such a person, to restore such a person. But an unforgiving spirit from a saved person can further crush and collapse a Christian. Therefore, it is, it is imperative, absolutely imperative to forgive and move on. To forget is not so easy. I will certainly amen that. But you have to forgive and you have to move on. Let's start today from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, look at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. What a statement to make. You Jews, believe in Jehovah, believe also in me. The Father and I are one. That's why they took up stones to kill him. John chapter 10. Because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. What would Paul say? Christ didn't think it was robbery to be made equal with God. That's why the Jews killed Christ. That's why the Jews rejected Christ. That's why the Jews to this day refused to receive Christ. Because he would claim to be Jehovah. Two. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Mansions being just mansions. Feeding into New Jerusalem. And you say to yourself this. Why should I live for the Lord? Why should I serve the Lord? Why should I consecrate myself? Why should I pick up my cross every day and follow the Lord? 
Why should I stand in a street corner and contend with the Jews, plead with Catholics, debate with Muslims, argue with atheists? Why should I bother? Because there's a mansion awaiting you, because your saviour came from heaven to earth, lived a life that you could never live, died in your place, would taste death, and I mean taste death for every man, and therefore he expects you to do something for him. Three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He dies on the cross, he goes back to heaven, he puts his blood in the Holy of Holies, and I mean literal blood, never mind what John MacArthur says, and he starts to prepare a place for those that love him. He starts to get your mansion ready for you. I mean a literal mansion, in a literal place for literal people. Don't ever spiritualize such a passage. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Jump down to six. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Stop fretting. Ye believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Not just some, but many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm not a liar. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, rapture, and receive you unto myself, the church, that where I am, present tense, there ye may be also. Go back to Second Corinthians chapter 5. For we know, verse 1, that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, your literal body, we have a building of God, third heaven, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You can't create this. You can't create New Jerusalem yourself. You can't do anything when it comes to, number one, your salvation, and number two, when it comes to your mansion. Although what you can do, of course, is lose the keys to your mansion. For we know the redeemed, that if our earthly house or this tabernacle were dissolved, like put to death, like martyred, like 10 out of 10 people would die, we have, present tense, a building of God, and house not made with hands, supernatural, eternal in the heavens. New Jerusalem, of course. New Jerusalem for the church. The new earth, the redeemed earth for the Jews. Two, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with a house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Number one, concerning imputation. And go back to that account from Matthew 21, 22 of the banquet. And the king has invited guests and a man arrives and he's not wearing uh, the garment, he becomes speechless, and the Lord says, bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. There's a picture of imputation. There's a picture of somebody arriving in eternity, like a Jew, like a Muslim, like a Protestant, like a Catholic, and they're not covered with Christ's imputation. On top of that, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with a house which is from heaven we want to be with the lord we want to spend forever worshiping him if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked feeding into the awful truth from i think it's first uh, john chapter 2 that some people will arrive at eternity more prepared shall we say than others 
Some people like Ananias and Sapphira. Some people like the Corinthians from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Demas, for example, are going to arrive in eternity not prepared, not ready. Meaning this, they will arrive pretty much naked. They've lost their crowns. They've lost their rewards. They lived after the flesh, never repented, and therefore are going to be dealt with accordingly. Not concerning their salvation. We know that our salvation was dealt with at the cross. But concerning rewards, concerning crowns, concerning New Jerusalem. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with a house which is from heaven. Be holy, for I am holy. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. More in reference to service, not salvation. For we that in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we will be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. You get saved, it's a free gift. You receive it by faith. I can't stress it enough. You trust on the Lord, you believe in him, you're saved. It's a done deal. Ephesians 4.30, you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Philippians chapter 1, he that has begun a good work in you will complete it, will bring it to pass. It's a saviour's good responsibility, or it's a saviour's privilege. No, it's a saviour's good pleasure to start your salvation off and complete it. Going back to what I said last week, I am saved. I am being saved. I will be saved concerning sanctification. We groan, verse 2, verse 4, in this tabernacle, our bodies groaning, being burdened. Going back to Romans chapter 8, how the entire creation is groaning, including the animal world. Not for that, we'll be unclothed. We don't want to go back to what it was like before we were saved. But clothed upon imputation, that mortality might be swallowed up of life, everlasting life. Going back to 4.17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So put up with the suffering, put up with the setbacks, put up with the disappointments, put up with this, put up with that, put up with the mocking, the scoffing, the jeering, the ridicule that you will suffer if you live for the Lord, because such is for the here and now, such is temporary. But like we like to say, we are playing a long game. We are planning for the future. We are planning long term. For example, you do an outreach, you put time aside, you purchase tracks, you get a banner, you travel from A to B. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes money. It's very stressful. You stand on a street corner, you bake in the summer, you freeze in the winter, you never know who's going to come around the corner, and you are very much, at times, running on adrenaline. And people come over to you and they start to interrogate you, they start to wind you up. They want to get a reaction from you. They want to belittle you. They want to push you. And yet most people don't know what I'm talking about. Most church people don't go onto the streets. In fact, just yesterday, I was monitoring a group of charismatics working the streets, giving out pamphlets, not uh, tracts. And I watched maybe two dozen of such people walking around the streets, giving out very expensive booklets. I mean, very expensive, glossy booklets, pushing their pastor this charlatan 
And of course, I know what this crowd are doing. They are pushing the man, pushing the ministry. In fact, the sort of guy they are pushing are the sort of people that were attacking Paul. Name it and claim it. Prosperity message. Paul's a fake. We're the real deal. Paul wants you to live in poverty. The Lord wants you to be wealthy and successful. He wants you to drive a beamer. He wants you to live very comfortably. He wants you to do this. He wants you to do that. It's not his will for you to suffer. It's not his will for you to be poor. It's not his will for you to be sick. And yet what would Paul have to do? He would have to travel with a doctor. He was almost blind before he died. Timothy would suffer with ulcers. Trophimus was sick unto death. Just three people that were saved. They weren't uh, healthy. They weren't uh, living a good life. Paul would tell you from 1 Corinthians that he was almost starving, living hand to mouth. He would call himself scum. He was despised. And when we get to chapter 12, I think it is from memory, he speaks about being whipped 40 times, save three, meaning 40 minus three. The maximum a Jew could be whipped was 40 times, and yet they never got 40. They were always given less than 40. I mean, that guy went through it. You talk about a ministry, you talk about a minister. Check out Paul sometime, and then tell me whether you are on the same page as he. I somehow doubt that you will be. 5-5. Five, five. Now he that hath wrought us for the self, same thing as God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit, like a down payment. Earnest of the Spirit, down payment, concerning your salvation. You want to buy a house, you want to buy a car, you put a deposit down, and you pay the rest over the next 25, 30 years if it's a mortgage. Salvation similar. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives you the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit comes to live with inside you. Unprecedented. Go back to the Old Testament. David, Solomon, Josiah, or Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or Elijah, or Elisha, they had the Spirit resting on them. The Spirit would anoint them, but he didn't live with inside them. On top of that, God the Father didn't live inside such people. God the Son didn't live inside such people. And yet for today, if you're saved, the Spirit, the Father, and the Son lives inside of you. And that's why Paul would tell you that he could do all things through Christ which strengtheneth him. And he that hath wrought us for the self, same thing as God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Go back to what I said 20 minutes ago. At first glance, you come across 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and it doesn't really register with you. Romans, absolutely. Galatians, absolutely. Ephesians, absolutely. But 1 Corinthians speaks about the rapture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which I may get to this morning, dismantles Calvinism, completely obliterates limited atonement, deals with the judgment seats of Christ, deals with the need to serve the Savior. And yet, if you don't read the scripture, if you are a casual Christian doing church once, twice, thrice a week, you'd miss such material. Look at verse 6. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, verse 6, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, here and now, living in our fallen bodies, in a fallen world, 
We are absent from the Lord. Of course, he is physically up in a third heaven. We are physically on the earth. And yet Ephesians 2 says we are already ruling with him up in the heavenlies. For we walk by faith, verse 7, not by sight. That is incredibly difficult. In fact, if you were to say to me this morning to really speak about or really explain living by faith, I'm not sure that I could do it. I'm not sure I could really explain what it means to live by faith. I mean, all of the time. I don't know anyone who lives by faith all of the time. Most people follow their instincts. Most people follow the crowd. Most people make a decision and hope for the best. And sometimes they are right in what they uh, they do. Other times they're not right in what they do. But here we walk by faith, not by sight. That's the key. Going back to the law. Going back to the Lord giving you a standard which you can't reach. But he can't lower the standard. Because if he lowers it, he's no longer God. So what does he do? Well, he becomes a man. And he meets the standard himself. And he says, if you trust in me, if you believe on me, I can take you to heaven when you die. Give you a mansion. Give you the keys to your mansion. But if you don't believe on me, if you don't walk with me, if you don't trust in me, I can't help you out. And I will punish you when you die. For we walk by faith. The just shall live by faith, not by sight. Well, of course. Also, you can't see your salvation but you can believe it by faith. You've never seen Jesus Christ face to face. You've never seen God the Father face to face. You've never seen the Holy Spirit face to face. You've never seen New Jerusalem. You've never seen any of this stuff, but you believe it. Going back to in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And he says this, you either believe it or you don't. He doesn't say, P.S., I know this sounds somewhat of a stretch, He doesn't say, I know this is difficult for you to comprehend. No, he says, in the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. And you either believe it or you don't. We are confident, verse 8, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Well, of course. I've been saved 15 years. When I first got saved, maybe five or six months, no more than a year after getting saved, I hit some turbulence in my walk with the Lord. We all do. And you will sooner or later. And I said to the Lord this. I said, Lord, I've had a good life and I'm ready to go home now. Kind of a selfish statement to make. I had no idea that down the line I would have this kind of a ministry that I would have been able to give out a million tracks with Patrick. And I'll speak about motivation shortly. But at the time, at the time, six months, a year into my salvation, I had had enough, had enough. And I wanted to go home and hear... This is kind of similar to how I was feeling then. Of course, I was wrong to feel such a way. I didn't really understand service. How could I? I wasn't raised in a church family. I wasn't raised to know the Bible. I wasn't raised to understand what it means to serve the Lord. I went to church Sundays. I served mass, went to Catholic schools. But so what? That doesn't mean anything. We are confident. Also, uh, in reference to verse 8, I say and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And Paul would say this, that it was more beneficial for the churches for Paul to remain. He wanted to go and be with the Lord. He was almost blind around this stage of his life. And some people like to email me and say that Paul's thorn in his flesh wasn't his ailing eyesight. It wasn't his almost uh, blindness. It was some 
other issue where we don't know what the thorn in his flesh was. Some people have speculated some crazy theories as to what that thorn in his flesh was. But for me, it's a no-brainer. For me, it's to do with his eyesight because he was a scholar. He enjoyed reading. He enjoyed writing. And for man, around this time, no more than 60, to be almost blind, to have to dictate his epistle to two or three people must have been very difficult for him. So if anybody wanted to go home, it would be Paul. But he knew, like I know, and you know, if you have any, you know, if you have any kind of a ministry, that it's more important for you to stay on the earth. We need you, and you need us. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Also, dealing with your salvation. If you die and you're saved, you go straight to be with the Lord. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no holding area. Your body may sleep, but your soul does not. That, of course, is soul sleep. That's an SDA heresy. A saved man dies, his body sleeps, awaiting the rapture, but his soul goes straight to be with the saviour. Same is true of a saved woman. Your soul does not sleep. Your body sleeps, but your soul doesn't sleep. And these verses are lost on so many people. Most Christians, if the truth be known, are closet Catholics. And I mean this. Most Christians don't understand what it is to be saved. And I made the point last Sunday, and I'll repeat myself very briefly now. Most Christians are closet Catholics. Most Christians don't know what justification is, don't know what it is to be saved, cannot explain imputation to you, think that if they don't confess their sins at the end of every day, they lose their salvation, which is what the Catholics believe, have no real assurance of salvation, and live in terror of dying and losing their salvation. But here, eight again, and I'll move on. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, the here and now, and to be present right away with the Lord. If you're saved and you die, straight to the Lord you go. No purgatory, no limbo, no third place, no Sheol, no Hades, no Gehenna. You go straight to be with the Lord. Now, ask yourself this. Can a Muslim promise you that? Can a Jew promise you that? Can a Catholic, a Freemason, a Hindu, a Sikh promise you that? Of course, you know the answer is no. Look at verse 9. Wherefore we labour, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Wherefore we labour, we work, we put ourselves out. That whether present or absent, dead or alive, we may be accepted of him. Concerning the judgment seats of the Lord. Going back to uh, verse 3. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. So it's all about service. It's all about self-denial. It's all about the saviour. It's all about scripture. It's about getting people saved. Wherefore we labour. We put ourselves out. We buy tracks. We get a banner made up. We go door to door. We purchase radio time. We take a stand. We do something. We buy a camera. We buy a tripod. We make videos. We produce MP3 recordings. We stand on our feet every Sunday morning and do verse by verse Bible studies. Whether present or absent, here or now, we may be accepted of him. Because one day we will all die. 
And if we're saved, we will go to the judgment seats of the Lord, verse 10. And such an appointment is mandatory. You can't escape it. And just for the record, the judgment seat of Christ is for the redeemed. The great white throne judgment is for the unredeemed. And I'll further elaborate on that now. The judgment seats of the Lord is going to be for those that get saved from Pentecost to the rapture. Okay, from the rapture to the end of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, they go to the great white throne judgment. And yes, there are saved people at the great white throne judgment. And I discussed that at length during my look at Revelation. Jump down to verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seats of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. I looked at a commentary maybe a week or so ago, actually maybe three weeks ago, about this piece of scripture. And the writer said this. When the saved person arrives at the judgment seats of the Lord, his slash her sins are not dealt with whatsoever. And I thought, what a lovely statement, but is it true? Now, what he was saying was this. At Calvary, all of your past, present and future sins were atoned for. Okay, I agree with that. But what he didn't want to deal with is what happens if you're saved, you sin, and I'll discuss that shortly, never repent, and then die. You mean to tell me that you won't have to answer for your sins at the judgment seats of the Lord? For we must all appear before the judgment seats of Christ. He's sitting, not standing. That every one, man or woman, may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Whether it be good or bad. You do good, praise the Lord. You do bad, look out. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think I will spend probably three Sundays looking at this one chapter from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which, like I say, at first glance, doesn't really register with the average Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 11, please. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ, not Muhammad, not Mary, not the Mass. For other foundation, or no other foundation, can no man or woman lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Going back to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. 12 again. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, declared. For the day, judgment seat, shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Twelve speaks about gold, silver. And of course, bronze would come in a good third place. And you know that gold is a top commodity, silver is a second. And then bronze, if you think of an athlete running a race, the first always gets gold. The second always gets silver and the third always gets bronze. But then it goes down to stones, wood, hay, stubble. So you've got two lots of 
commodities there. You've got the best being gold, tied to sterling, for example, tied to the dollar, for example, tied to the yen, for example. So sterling, dollar, yen, and then you go down to wood, hay, stubble. I guess tie it to some second or third world country. You get the idea. Different levels of works which are being judged. Fire found twice in verse 13 in reference to a person's works being weighed up at the judgment seats of the Lord. 14. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So Jesus will judge you. And he will look at your works and he will decide whether or not your works are legit. He will decide as to what your motives were. Going back to my earlier statement concerning the belief that we, Patrick and I, have given out around a million tracks since we first got saved. But here's the question. What was the motivation for that? And you know what? I don't know. What is a motivation for me doing anything for the Lord? And you know what? I don't know. And nor do you. You don't know for sure. Why you do what you do for the Saviour? You might say this. You might say, well, I've been saved 35 years and I've given up everything to follow the Saviour. I live very simply. I do this, I do that. And praise the Lord if you do. But again, what is the motivation for that? If you sit down with a typical Catholic priest, he will say this to you. He will say that I've been a priest 45 years, never married, no children, don't have a job, don't own my own property, don't have this, don't have that. I've given up everything. But why? What's the motivation? In his mind, he's done it for his church. He's done it for his church, not for Christ. Now, when he gets to the great white throne judgment, because he's not saved, of course, he dies trusting in a full system, he too will be judged based on what he did. Motivation. Let's keep reading on. 15. If any man's work shall be burned... He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Catholics use this for purgatory, and they mangle this to their own destruction. It's not speaking about you, it's speaking about your works. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, like a loss or two of a crown, like a loss or two of a reward, like a loss or two of the keys to your mansion, but he himself shall be saved, once saved, always saved, yet so as by fire, like by the skin of his teeth. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Go back to Second Corinthians. The judgment seats of Christ, the beamer seat of Christ, is something which we will all have to face. It's mandatory. You can't get around it. And if you're saved, you will one day stand in the presence of Jesus third heaven, and he will judge you. Now, one more time, not concerning your salvation, praise the Lord for that, but concerning what you did after you got saved, concerning that trip you took to Honduras, for example, or that trip you took to Nicaragua, for example, or that trip you took to New Zealand, for example. What was the motivation behind it? Or you decided to sell your house. You decided to hit the road. You decided to live a reclusive lifestyle. You decided to become a Catholic priest. You decided to become an Anglican vicar. You decided to do this. You decided to do that. What was the motivation for it? That's what he wants to know. And only he knows that. Ten again. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. You say, are you looking forward to this, James? No, not at all. I'll tell you why. I don't look forward to standing in the presence of my God who made everything. I'm not looking forward to stand in the presence of my God who knows everything. I'm not looking forward to stand in the presence of my eternal God who is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. I am not looking forward to standing in the presence of Jesus and having him judge me. Not one moment of one day. You may say, well, I'm not bothered about it, James. You may say to me that I've lived a pretty good life. I don't care about standing in the presence of Jesus Christ. Well, here's some thoughts for you. And like I said, this will be a three-party now. Number one, how many lies does a person have to tell pre and post their salvation to be a liar? Number two, how many things does a person have to steal pre and post their salvation to be a thief? Number three, how many times does a person have to take God's name in vain pre and post their salvation to be a blasphemer? Number four, how many times does a person have to hate their brother or sister in Christ to be a murderer? Number five, how many times does a saved person have to get drunk pre and post their salvation to be a drunkard? Number six, how many times does a saved person have to overcharge or copyright the materials to be guilty of extortion? Not through yet. Number seven, how many times does a saved person have to smear slash gossip slash undermine a person to be guilty of reveling? And incidentally, the term reveling found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 concerns a person not inheriting the kingdom of God. And if you listen to most Christians, they will have you believe that you can lose your salvation. So one more time, how many lies do you need to tell to be a liar? Just one. How many things do you have to steal to become a thief? Just one. How many times do you have to take the Lord's name in vain to be a blasphemer? Just once. How many times do you have to hate your brother or sister in Christ to be a murderer? Just once. And what does 1 John 3 say that if you are guilty of such, you're not saved. How many times do you have to get drunk to be a drunkard? Just once, of course. How many times do you have to make money off the backs of people? Going back to Second Peter chapter 2. And you think of these ministries which charge a lot of money for their Bibles. How many times do you have to charge a lot of money off the backs of people to be guilty of extortion just once? I was very kindly sent two reference Bibles over the last three years. One reference Bible came to me from a dear brother and he very kindly enclosed the invoice and I was shocked. I was shocked at how much this reference Bible cost. It cost $150, okay, $150. The postage cost him around $50. Another Bible came my way from another very kind party, a kind brother in the Lord, and he too enclosed the invoice. And the cost to purchase this reference Bible was $160. $160. for the postage. You got two reference Bibles. Two King James reference Bibles coming to around $200. Which in British money, £125, £130. 
The footnotes, incidentally, are far and few between. One of the reference Bibles, the footnotes ran to no more than a thousand. And when I first got saved, I purchased a reference Bible for £25. And there are 30,000 footnotes. 30,000. When it comes to value for money, which is the better? The £25 Bible, which is around, I think, $40, or $150 for 1,000 footnotes. Incidentally, those King James reference Bibles that were sent my way were produced by ministries which believe we are in the last days, which believe in heaven and hell, and yet they are guilty, I put it to you this morning, of extortion, making money, making a lot of money, making too much money off the backs of people. I know it costs money to produce stuff, and therefore, if you can, put it out for as little as possible. And one final time, and I will close. How many times do you need to be guilty of smearing a person, gossiping about a person, undermining a person to be guilty of reveling just once? You still think you're going to farewell at the judgment seats of the Lord Jesus Christ if you're saved? You can't wait for that day, can you? Well, I'll tell you something. I can wait for that day. I don't want to rush that day anytime soon. And next week, I will look at some more sins which are never preached about. And these sins are aimed at saved people, not unsaved people. Never mind adultery, never mind fornication, never mind idolatry. How about those other sins that I looked at just a few moments ago? And I got more for next week. We must all appear before the judgment seats of the Lord. Well, I'm in no rush for that day to occur. It will come. And when it comes, I will be very much at the mercy of the Lord. And I'll close it there. And next week, pick it up from... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And yes, we are still working through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us in verse 8. Now he that planteth, and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And that's the key. That's the way to best understand the judgment seats of the Lord. Every man, every woman, middle part of verse 8, shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Feeding into verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, like get saved, base your foundation on Jesus Christ, and then start to work, start to serve the Savior. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Concerning service, of course, concerning the judgment seat of the Lord. So on that statement, go to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it is dealing with service. It speaks about groaning. It speaks about uh, not wanting to appear unclothed concerning one's uh, standing in the Lord. And also from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are thinking about the two natures of the believer. O wretched man that I am, that what I want to do, I do not do, and that which I don't want to do, I end up doing. Romans chapter 7, concerning, of course, the fact that we all have two natures, and I will further discuss that hopefully this morning. But last week, we got up to verse 10 from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body. According to that, he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Peter, makes the case that if you suffer, it's best to suffer as a Christian, not as a busybody, not as a murderer, 
And you might say to me, can a Christian commit murder? Well, John Calvin did. John Calvin came up against uh, Michael Servetus, and John Calvin was infuriated that Servetus would reject the Trinity, would clash with Calvin, would write against Calvin's police states. And John Calvin gave orders to detain Michael Servetus, to interrogate Michael Servetus, to execute Michael Servetus. And he, I believe, spent three hours burning. They burnt him alive for three hours. They used what was called green wood. And people say, well, was John Calvin saved? Who knows? But if he was saved, he had a lot of anger towards Michael Servetus. So if Peter says, don't suffer as a busybody, that means you could be a busybody. And if Peter says, don't suffer as a murderer, that means you could commit murder. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. If you are angry with your brother, if you call him uh, a fool, you are guilty of hellfire. Matthew chapter 5. 1 John chapter 3. If you hate your brother or sister in the Lord, that's the context. 1 John chapter 3. You are a murderer. And no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. Much material in the scripture. And yet most preachers get stuck on the big sins like adultery, like fornication. And they completely bypass many other sins. And I gave you seven from last week. And I got seven more to preach on this morning. And I'm going to call these messages or these particular sins neglected sins. The Catholics speak about these seven uh, deadly sins. But all sin is deadly. The scripture says if you break one of his commandments, you've broken all of them. And yet people still believe that you can lose your salvation. They believe that. And they actually believe that you can be saved like a minute to 11. And by 11 a.m., one minute past 11, if you die without confessing your sins, you go straight to hell. They believe that. I'm not making this stuff up. And yet if you drill into the atonement, if you take the time to think about imputation, if you take the time to think about Calvary, if you take the time to think about what was achieved at Calvary, And especially if you look at Romans, Galatians and Ephesians, how can you come to any other conclusion apart from once saved, always saved? For we, the church, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Like I said last week, this is mandatory. And this is in reference to your service. One more time, not your salvation. Your salvation was dealt with on the cross. Never forget that. That every one, man or woman, those that are saved, those that know the difference between right and wrong, may receive the things done in his body. O wretched man that I am, go back to Romans chapter 7. According to that, he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So it's clear enough to me, concerning the fact that we are going to be judged by the Saviour, and we'll have to give an account to him. And like I've been saying for a long time now, I'm not looking forward to that. You may say, well, James, I'm not too concerned about it. You may say to me, that you're a pretty decent person and you may say to me that you've been saved for a long period of time and you may say to me that you don't commit the big sins well go back to what I said a few moments ago anger is murder in fact Jesus would say if you look to lust after woman you commit adultery with her already in your heart if you're a typical man you mean to tell me that you've never once lusted after a woman never once are you a homosexual or if you are a woman it goes both ways you never once lusted after men. So I sat down a few nights ago in preparation for this morning. Because like I said a few moments ago and last week I gave you seven sins which are never, if ever, preached against by a typical preacher. And you may say to me, well, why aren't these preachers preaching against such sins? Well, here's a little thought for you. A man who lives, quote unquote, with another man won't speak out against homosexuality. 
A man who is sympathetic or a member of a secret society won't speak out against the Freemasons. A man who worships a Greek set of manuscripts won't speak out against idolatry. Just yesterday, Patrick and I were doing some street work and two chaps walked past us. Very skimpy clothing, shall we say. Shorts, t-shirt, almost matching pair. And even their haircuts were very similar. And he said to me, that guy on the left-hand side is the vicar of such and such a church. I thought, really? And his buddy, his boyfriend, maybe his husband, walking right beside him. And I thought, well, there you are, you see. That's the state of the church, quote-unquote, today. But let's keep moving on. Let's take a little closer look when it comes to sin. Sins of the saints. And these sins are not in reference to unsaved people. Those people are spoken of over in uh, the book of uh, Revelation, like the unbelievers, the fearful, the whoremongers. That crowd never saved to begin with. I'm going to speak about saved people today. People that are saved and practice sin. And yes, saved people do practice sin. You shouldn't practice sin, but people do. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 20 to 21, lists around 15 sins. And I've just uh, written down seven sins for today. Witchcraft slash sorcery. The Greek word for witchcraft is pharmaceutical. And of course, you know what that is in reference to? A pharmacist. You have an illness. You go and see your doctor. And the doctor says to you, what's a problem, Mr. Such and Such? Or what's a problem, Mrs. Such and Such? Or what is a problem, period? And you say, well, I'm feeling somewhat depressed. Or I'm suffering with anxiety. That's a big problem in the UK at the moment. Many, many people are visiting their doctors and are, given, uh, and are being prescribed medication for depression, anxiety. And yes, you can, if you are saved, suffer with depression or anxiety. I think Paul, on many occasions, would suffer with depression. That's kind of normal. I mean, Charles Spurgeon was always down in the dumps. Oliver Cromwell, a man I'm currently writing about, he would suffer awful depression. And of course, back in his day, there were no antidepressants. Abraham Lincoln, witchcraft, sorcery, leading into pharmaceutical, feeding into medication, feeding into antidepressants, feeding into any kind of mood and mind-altering drugs, the sort of thing that will cause you to hallucinate, LSD. And of course, such is practiced by pagan religions. In fact, I've got a hypothesis, I've got a theory that one of the reasons why the Corinthians were so carnal and the latter part of 1 Corinthians speaks about if any man loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha, was in reference to the Corinthians perhaps taking drugs because they were from that particular background. They came from a very carnal part of Greece and that part of the Roman Empire was known to indulge in drugs. And I believe this. I think it's quite possible that the tongues that the Corinthians were practicing, quote-unquote, was as a result of taking drugs, of becoming intoxicated. Never mind drinking and driving, that is also a sin, drunkenness, of course. But here, I'm looking at witchcraft, I'm looking at sorcery. And of course, I know this is going to feed into uh, witchcraft in the modern sense of the term. People who like to do spells, potions, I know that, of course. But Paul isn't addressing this to unsaved people. He is addressing this to saved people. So you've got the occult, you've got magic. And you say to me, could a Christian really stray into this particular realm? Possibly. I've heard of some people that have got saved, have backslid for a while, 
have got caught up in the occult. And you say, how could that be possible? I don't know, but I've heard such accounts. And they spent some time in such an environment and have come out. And you might say, well, maybe they weren't saved to begin with. Maybe they were saved to begin with. This goes back to self-righteousness again. People are very self-righteous. People say, you mean to tell me that man is saved or that woman is saved? Maybe you're not saved. Have you thought about that? Just because a person is born again doesn't mean they haven't got an old nature. So witchcraft, sorcery, Galatians 5, 20, 21. And it goes on to say that they that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God concerning the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet most reference Bibles believe it is in reference to your salvation. Most Christians, most churches, if you didn't already know, believe you can lose your salvation. They believe that. What I believe, I'm in a minority. I'm the 10% that believe once saved, always saved. Most don't believe that. Most people would say that if you practice, for example, witchcraft or sorcery in the sense of medication, in the sense of seeing psychiatrists, in the sense of visiting a psychologist or psychotherapist, in the sense of perhaps smoking marijuana, and I hear from people that smoke marijuana, and no, I'm not in favour of it. I think smoking is disgusting. But people say this, that if such a person is doing such things, they're not saved. But again, go back to John Calvin. Go back to anyone from the last two, three, four, five hundred years. Even Oliver Cromwell. I believe he was a saved man, and yet he was a very worldly man. And he was a soldier in the British Army. He was the uh, commander-in-chief. He had people killed. He had people hung. And some of those people could have been saved people. Going back to, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. So we have to be very careful when we try and understand what is going on. And that's why I believe, and I'll say it again, that if you don't hold to once saved, always saved, you've got no hope. Because if you could lose your salvation, you would. Hatred feeding into jealousy. You mean to tell me that a saved person can't be angry? You mean to tell me a saved person can't be jealous? Outbursts of anger? paranoia, envy. You mean to tell me that just because you are saved, you've never been envious? Really? Most churches fall apart due to envy. Most churches clash based on envy. I remember many years ago before I was saved, Patrick telling me a story of some churches that he was aware of, and these were black charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches, and they had a term which I'd never heard. And the term was this, church poaching. This was news to me. I was raised a Catholic. The church we went to was a pretty big church, a very large church, well attended. But these smaller churches, these free churches, these black churches are, if they are fortunate, can perhaps get up to 200 strong. And the great fear was church poaching. And these two chaps that Patrick knew, a couple of cleaners, black uh, charismatics, told him this. They said that there was a guy called uh, Pastor Friday. Excuse me, Dr. Friday, a very unusual name. And this Dr. Friday was very charismatic. They thought the world of this guy, like most of these churches do. And we call such pastor worship. And the great fear was this, that one church would poach from another church, which is what happened, of course. And it caused a lot of anger, hatred, outbursts of anger, denominationalism. But it also resulted in paranoia, envy. You've got two black churches in South London, one church is 100 strong, another church is, say, 75 strong. And the great fear was that one church would poach from another church. And that's why people fall out. And that's why saved people fall out, because they are worried about losing numbers. On top of that, if you've got a guy on a salary 
He can't afford to lose two or three families. And that's why some of these smaller churches are jealous of the larger churches. It's kind of obvious. Look at these mega churches in America. And we have some in the UK. 10, 15, 20,000 strong. Tithing, 10, 20%. And they're able to employ maybe two dozen pastors, maybe 15, 20 assistant pastors, youth pastors. This is big business. These churches are very wealthy. And like I said, we have a few in the UK. And yet a smaller church, 25, 30 strong, led by the one-man minister, is very envious of such churches. He has job insecurity, and he will become very uh, spiteful. He will be very critical of these bigger churches, not because they are uh, teaching a different uh, gospel, or I shouldn't say different gospel, a different type of message, but because they are wealthier. Variance leading into inconsistent, leading into disagreeing or quarreling, discrepancy between the two, like being double-minded. You mean to tell me just because you're saved, you've never been double-minded? In the sense of you should know better. In the sense of be ye perfect, for I am perfect. Not, of course, concerning sinner's perfection. Concerning your walk with the Lord. Concerning your understanding of the Lord. Concerning what you know to be so. Emulations feeding into dissimulation being hypocrisy. You mean to tell me just because you are saved, you haven't been guilty of hypocrisy? You say one thing to one person, and yet you mean something completely the opposite. Jealousy, of course, comes from hypocrisy. Duplicitous, deceitful. Paul says such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Concerning your millennial inheritance, not salvation. How about wrath? Feeding into hostility. Anger at God. Anger towards a saint or two. One more time. Galatians 5, 22, 21 is aimed at saved people, the church, the body of Christ. And yes, I do believe we are like a hospital. We come to the Lord with a sin problem. That sin problem doesn't completely leave us. Wrath, hostility, you become deviant. You go around like a hypocrite, spiteful, gossiping. Going back to being a reveler, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. One moment you are praising the Lord, the next minute you are cutting a saint down. How about strife? Feeding into anger and bitter disagreement, like denominational divisions, like church poaching. Like, look at this church over here, 10,000 strong. We haven't even got 50 people in our church. We can't afford to pay our pastor. The pastor is very insecure. He has no job security. And yet he looks at a huge church, 1,000 strong, 2,500 strong, 5,000 strong. He's jealous. He is uh, bitter, almost. He wishes he could uh, produce that kind of money. He wishes he could uh, put on that kind of a show. He wishes uh, that his church was the biggest in his town. How about sedition? Meaning conduct or speech inciting rebellion against the authority of a state or monarch, like the Jesuits. They go around, and they have done for many years, trying to undermine governments. That's why they were kicked out of Japan. They were crucified by the Japanese. Because they were, once again, inciting rebellion. They were getting involved with the workers. They were trying to create this socialist state. Look at Venezuela on its knees. And this current pope is very much a believer of this Marxist gospel. Liberation theology. On top of that, how about attacks undermining the word of God? If you think of the Jason scholars, if you think of any of these groups going back two, three hundred years feeding back to Westcott's and Hort. They've done so much damage to the scripture. We've done two trips to Speaker's Corner during the last 12 months. 
And we've spoken to many Mohammedans, and some of their attacks against us, I know, have come from the Jesuits. They've come from Westcott and Hawks. They've come from the so-called worship of Greek texts. These guys have gone online. They've looked up the Bible, King James, Textus Septus, and they have read a lot of material which has been produced by so-called Christians, and they've used such material against us. And those Jesuits, those Jason scholars, most seminaries around the world today, I would say, are guilty of sedition against God's word. They attack the King James Bible. They put doubts in the minds of the church. And yet they don't apologize for that. They're not sorry for that. And Revelation 22, 18 to 20 says that if you add to the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, or if you take from the word of the Lord, God will take your name out of the book of life. So people say, but I'm still not concerned about it, James. You are kidding yourself. If you are saved, if you are born again, washed in the blood, and you can say, hand in your heart, that since you got saved, let's start one more time, that you've never lied, that you've never stolen, that you've never taken the Lord's name in vain, that you've never hated your brother or sister, that you've never got drunk, that you've never overcharged for a reference Bible or a DVD feeding into extortion, that you've never gossiped, undermined, or smeared a saint, that you've never been angry, jealous, you've never quarreled, you've never been double-minded, you've never been a hypocrite, you've never been jealous, you've never been guilty of uh, anger, feeding into strife, bitterness, or sedition. If you've never done those things, can I shake your hand? Because I don't think you're being honest with yourself. And on top of that, you're not being honest with the body of Christ. And on top of that, you're not being honest with the Lord. You've done these things, and I've just given you 14 sins. Just 14 from 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians chapter 5. So it is something to be aware of. It's something to be conscious of. This isn't something to take lightly. And that's why Paul tells you from 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men... But we are made manifest unto God. And I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. The terror of the Lord. That word terror, you think of terrorism. And when I was growing up, I would uh, go up to London a lot. And one of the great fears, the IRA could bomb London. Now we have the Islamic problem. And those guys, those women, are going to keep on coming. Because they are told in their Quran that they have to deal with the Kafirs, the enemies of Allah. They are told to slay Jews and Christians, wherever they find them. Just because most Muslims are not doing that doesn't mean that what their Quran tells them isn't so. It simply means that most Muslims are not really Muslim. The minority are, like Christians. Most Christians are not Christians. Most Christians don't believe in the scripture. Most Christians don't go to speaker's corner. Most Christians don't take a stand for the Savior. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord concerning 14 sins, and there are many more, incidentally, we persuade men, say people, but we are made manifest unto God. We are declared unto God. We are transparent. Go back to the background, to Second Corinthians. These false teachers going around, undermining Paul, saying that he was a false teacher, saying that there wasn't really a judgment, like there's no hell, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would have you believe, like the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church would have you believe. You don't believe me? Get your hands on the Catholic Catechism, written by uh, Joseph Ratzinger, 1994. Get your hands on it, read it sometime. 
He says a Muslim can go to heaven without Jesus. He says a Jew can go to heaven without Jesus. And yet, as far as I know, there isn't a Catholic anywhere in the world that has rebuked such a statement. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord concerning this judgment, concerning every work that you've done being judged, not salvation but service, we persuade men, we persuade the body of Christ to ship up. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. He's saying this, you know that we are legit, you know that we are the real deal, you know that we love you, you know that we have been beside you every step of the way, you know that we got you saved, you know that we got your family saved. They knew that Paul was the real deal, but a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You've got this crowd going around, undermining him, saying that he was a false teacher. must have been very painful for him. But I look at 10, I look at 11, I see the potential for commendation and also condemnation. I see the reference here to the terror of the Lord because it's going to be quite an event to behold. You're going to be up in heaven. You will see Jesus Christ seated. He has authority to judge the church, referred to here as the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10, the beamer seat of Christ. He has authority to judge the world. Great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. And yes, there will be some saved people at the great white throne judgment who got saved and died during the tribulation, got saved and died during the millennium. Hence why they are resurrected to appear at the great white throne judgment. But for us today, we are the church. This is aimed at us. 12. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. He's saying this. He's saying, you know that we are the real deal, like I said. And he wants the Corinthians to stand up for him and silence the false teachers, which is what we try and do at this ministry. We try and stand up for the Lord. We stand up for the scriptures. We stand up for his finished work on the cross. We come up against this conditional security crowd. And there are many of them. We come up against the Catholics, the Anglicans, the ecumenical movements. The battle never ends. 10, 11, 12, judgment seat of Christ, terror of the Lord. We persuade men. We come alongside men. 12 again, commend not ourselves again unto you going back to Letters of commendation from you or letters of commendation uh, to you. In other words, we don't need to be reintroduced to you. And if you are a saved person, people should know that you are saved. People should know that you are the real deal. They shouldn't be questioning your authenticity. On top of that, Paul is dealing with these false teachers that were plaguing the church in Corinth. Acts 20, Paul says they will come from within, not without. They will deny the only Lord God that bought them, Second Peter 2, 1, they will teach this lasciviousness kind of gospel that there's no judgment, you can do what you want, there's no consequences, which also gets uh, put to us. People say that we teach such a message. Those of us which hold to once saved, always saved. We don't teach such a message. I've just spent the last 25 minutes telling you that if you are saved and you live after the flesh, and I gave you 14 sins, you will lose your place in the thousand year reign of Christ. You will lose crowns. I've just told you that. I'm not going to play it down. This is serious stuff. But people don't want to hear it. People think that just because they are saved, that they are super duper, that they don't do such things. Well, I put it to you one more time. You are in denial. You are denying yourself. You are lying to the body of Christ and you are lying to the Lord. 
13. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. He knew the seriousness of sin, the sins of the saints. He knew what the consequences would be if, number one, this crowd of false teachers got in, deep into the body of Christ, undermined his authority, attacked the scriptures, which is what they are still doing. Just go onto YouTube, type in Bible, type in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, type in Christian, type in uh, visions, type in uh, Bible issues. There's so much stuff out there, it will blow your mind. All these people posting videos, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, the Lord took me here, the Lord took me there. And they write books about what they've seen, and what they've had revealed to them. And people can't get enough of it. They lap it up. For whether we be beside ourselves. That's a pretty strong word. To be beside yourself means to be in a state of despair. I am beside myself. And yet, do you think Westcott and Hort were ever beside themselves? Of course not. Do you think John Calvin was ever beside himself when it came to having Servetus burnt to death? Of course not. Do you think the Dominicans were ever beside themselves when they burnt women and children to death? Of course they weren't. Do you think today's crowd of Bible deniers are beside themselves? Do you think James White cries in his coffee every morning? Of course he doesn't. Do you think R.C. Sproul cries in his coffee every morning when he contemplates the belief that Christ only loves the elect and only died for the elect? Of course he doesn't. Do you think John MacArthur is beside himself when he thinks about denying the blood of Christ or that you can take the mark of the beast and be saved? Of course he's not. These are professional preachers, career clergymen, and yet they are listened to by thousands of people, if not millions, going back to huge churches. In fact, just a quick footnote, I think it was uh, John MacArthur's church ministry, call it what you will, they are able to purchase radio time, and that radio time is going out 24-7 on 800 stations. How about that? 800 radio stations, not shortwave. No, no, this is FM. This is AM. This is uh, top-notch radio. You've got Grace to You going out on 800-plus radio stations. How about Jimmy Swaggett? Jimmy Swaggett, he has his own uh, satellite, and his satellite, 30 miles up in space, is airing his uh, ministry 24-7 on Sky Television. Big money. And yet Jimmy says you can lose your salvation. And yet when he got caught in that incident, overnight he changed his mind. Barry Smith said that if you committed suicide, you would lose your salvation. And then an incident came into his family, and overnight he changed his mind. You see, this goes back to Lordship salvation. This goes back to, it's all very easy to teach something in a classroom. It's all very well to have a belief, but you wait till it comes into your own family. You wait till, uh, you wait till your daughter comes home. And she says she's pregnant. Or your son comes home and says he's a homosexual. Or someone comes into your family with some awful news. Like your loved one is going to convert to Islam. It changes overnight. And if you are saved, you'll have to readjust your theology. But at the same time, don't kid yourself. Don't become a fool. Don't become an apostate. You have to go with the scripture. You have to say, well, what you've told me is all very well. It's still a sin. And this will be the consequences of what you do. But I go back to my earlier comment that people, especially preachers, will teach a particular message for a particular time until 
a situation comes into their own family, and then it all changes overnight. For whether we be beside ourselves, and he was, he was their spiritual father, it is to God. God could see it. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. Contrast that to the false teachers. Contrast that to those that were going around, saying you can do what you will, that uh, Almighty God is okay with not believing and still going to heaven, like the Catholic Catechism, like any false religion for that matter. But for me, and I will start to conclude this message for today, what I really want to try and do is drive home the reality, the awful reality, that if you are saved, you aren't exempt from sin, you will practice sin for a period of time. I think it was Billy Sunday who once said that you may practice sin for a period of time, you may roll around in the dirt for a period of time, but eventually you will get out of the dirt. And that's partly true. But at the same time, how about that sin unto death? How about the Corinthians? How about uh, Demas, having loved this world, has forsaken me? How about uh, Ananias and Sapphira? Those people never repented. Go back to the Old Testament. They got saved the same way that we get saved, through their faith in the one true God. I can't find Lot ever repenting, can you? I can't find uh, Saul or Saul ever repenting. I can't find Solomon ever repenting. I can't find Samson just before he takes his own life. And many Philistines repenting because he was already saved. We've looked at lying. We've looked at stealing. We've looked at taking the Lord's name in vain. And there are many ways of doing that. Not just by saying OMG. By the way you live. I knew a guy some years ago. He's now dead. Who was a five point Calvinist. And he was very friendly with this Mormon couple. I don't know why. And I was told by those that knew this chap. I met him a couple of times myself. Very prickly character that he would uh, associate with this Mormon couple, like, regularly. And on top of that, he would go into his local pub with this Mormon couple. And I didn't have a view on that. Personally, I think it was a foolish thing to do. But I knew, the moment I heard that, that people would have said, hey, there's such and such. And they would have seen him going to this pub with this Mormon couple. And that results in blaspheming the Lord. Because he offered himself as a Christian. People knew that he was a Christian. And yet, look at the company he was keeping. Look at the places that he was visiting. There's so much more to the term blasphemy than just saying JC or OMG. Hating, despising your brother or sister in the Lord, not being able to forgive your brother or sister in the Lord, holding a grudge can result, if you're not careful, in the loss of crowns and your place in the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet most Bible commentaries, like I say, and most churches, like I've already stated, will say that this is in reference to your salvation. Well, if that's the case, we are all sunk. How about getting drunk? Maybe some of you can say, well, I've never been drunk a day in my life. Well, wonderful. But I know many Christians that have been drunk, have struggled with alcohol. We got an email, I think it was about a year ago or so, from somebody who was struggling with drink. And this person, in their email, said they had been trying for 15 years to conquer the booze, to conquer drink. And they tried this, they tried that. They were at their wits' end. And they said to me that they couldn't stop drinking. Were they saved? Had they committed the unpardonable sin? And I said, of course not. The unpardonable sin has nothing to do with drinking. The unpardonable sin feeds into blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ, calling him a demon-possessed man. The worst sin a person can commit is the sin of unbelief. That's why the first uh, group of sins, Revelation 
20, I think it is, speaks about the unbelieving, the fearful. It doesn't start off with murderers, whoremongers. No, it starts off with the unbelieving, the fearful. That's the worst sin. The fear of believing and being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. How about extortion? Reference Bibles, DVDs, cassette tapes. I could spend a lot of time discussing this. And I mentioned this last week, didn't I? A couple of nice Bibles came my way. Very nice Bibles. Leather Bibles. Very heavy Bibles. Very uh, substantial Bibles. Good quality material. But grossly overpriced. And such people, such ministries, will have to answer for themselves at the judgment seats. How about sneering, gossiping, undermining someone? Going back to envy. Going back to jealousy. This is a major problem. This is why so many people fall out. It isn't based on theology. It's based on, I don't like him. I don't like her. She's got 20,000 subscribers. He's got 15,000 subscribers. Or he's got 10,000 in his church. We haven't even got 150. That's what this is all about. And they start to smear such a person. Witchcraft, sorcery, hooked on, medication. It could be legal. It could be illegal. The Corinthians, I think, were perhaps... Partly responsible for doing this, or they were responsible for doing this, and as a result, were cursing Christ as they were speaking in tongues. And that's why, if you come across people that speak in tongues, you say to them, What are you saying? They can't answer you. And I've asked this question many times to such people hatred, jealousy, that's pretty clear, resulting in outbursts of anger, paranoia, envy. Before I was saved, I knew two chaps that were leaders of an appreciation society. And I was told this, that these two chaps, pretty wealthy, had been friends for a period of time, and towards the end of uh, their friendship, it went south. And what happened was this. They got into a quarrel. They started to become jealous of one another because one was making more money than the other. If that wasn't bad enough, one of these two chaps was dying of cancer. And I was told that... Instead of getting his house in order, he had a wife and two children, he was more interested in scoring points over his rival. He was angry, he was jealous. And this guy, 50, 55, pretty young really, six months from death, unsaved of course, I wasn't saved at the time, was more interested in scoring points over this rival who had once been his friend. The same is true of most churches, like I say, church poaching, the terror of losing people to another church. Variance, inconsistent, disagreeing, quarrelling, resulting in a double-minded person. Most people, if they are honest with themselves, have been double-minded at least once in their life. Emulations, hypocrisy, that's a big one. You are a hypocrite. You say this, but you do that. Hypocrisy is a major problem for saved people, resulting in jealousy. Jealous of a ministry, jealous of a minister, like he's got many more subscribers than I have. He's got many more donors than I have. That's what this is all about. It's jealousy. It's not theology, which it should be. Wrath, hostility, anger at God, and anger towards his saint or two. Pretty self-explanatory. Strife, anger, and bitter disagreement, bitter resentment, feeding into denominational divisions. The cults are very good at this. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they will speak about how strong they are. The Catholics are the worst. They will say that they've got over a billion members and they take great delight in telling you that. But so what? It's the flesh. It's not from the Lord. The majority have never had the truth. It's always been the minority. You know that. Acts chapter 1. 120 are in the upper room. Not 120,000. 120. 
Sedition, that's so clear. Revolution, let's bring this government down. Let's bring in this new government. Left-wing anarchists, also in reference to the Jesuits, also in reference to liberation theology. Let's march for this, let's march for that. Let's bring the state down. You see it all around you, like the G20 this past week in Hamburg. 80,000 turned up on the streets of Germany, smashed up a large section of Hamburg. Millions of pounds of damage. What was it all for? The leaders didn't get to see it. The leaders flew in with their private armies and flew out with their private armies. And on top of that, you've got so-called Christians marching with those atheists or those atheist anarchists, which is even more shameful. And finally, such people from the religious crowd, the Jesuits, the Anglicans, the Westcott and Hort Brigade, attack the Bible, undermine the Bible. And they are guilty of sedition. They are guilty of shipwrecking the faith of so many people. And those people, if they are saved, I don't know if they are or not, but if they are saved, those people will have to answer for themselves at the judgment seats of the Lord. That's why Paul says this is a terror of the Lord. Not in reference to the fires all around you, as one commentator would suggest, concerning the fact that you are in the presence of the Saviour. And he sees everything. And that's why if you're not saved, get saved. And if you are saved, quit this kind of stuff. Because if you don't, the consequences are just dire. And I'll close there next week, pick it up from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Please go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to build a little further concerning the judgment seats of the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 7, if you will. I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I kept the faith. Henceforth there was laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So Paul picks up the imagery, a very vivid picture here of an athlete receiving a crown. And if you go back to any sport event like Wimbledon or like the Olympics or like the FA Cup or the Premiership, if you have any conception of any sporting event, you know within five seconds how this plays out. Two teams meet. It could be England versus Spain, for example. One team beats the other team. And one of the teams gets a crown of some kind. Or it could be Wimbledon. It could be uh, the final for the women or the men. And one of the two wins and gets a reward. Gets a nice paycheck. Or go back to the Olympics. One of the uh, winners gets gold. One of the winners gets uh, silver. One of the winners gets bronze. But here Paul says in verse 7... I have fought a good fight, and he certainly did. I finished my course, going back to Acts chapter 9, how Paul would have to suffer a lot for the Saviour. I have kept the faith, he certainly did. Henceforth there was laid up for me a crown of righteousness concerning everlasting life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, being Jesus Christ, shall give me at that day, judgment seat of Christ, of course, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing so the picture here is of paul the apostle being rewarded for service okay not salvation i can't stress it enough you can't you won't you will never be rewarded for your salvation you can't bring anything to the lord 
You can't do anything when it comes to your salvation. And when that is put to unsaved people, they kick against it. They despise that because most religions think that you can please the Lord or their God, whoever he or she may be, by doing this or that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But the truth of the matter is you can't do anything whatsoever when it comes to your salvation. It's all been provided for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul continues to use the imagery of an athlete. The judgment seat of Christ, the beamer seat of Christ. Go back to the first century. You had a race of some kind or you had the gladiator events. You had the uh, mausoleum, the Colosseum, I should say. People were putting on a show for Caesar. And if you won, you were spared. If you lost, you were put to death. Life was very cheap. In fact, if the truth be known, go back to the first century, most people were Darwinists. If the truth be known, life was not particularly important. You could be purchased and sold for less than 30 pieces of silver. But now, or once the grace of God was offered to the world, life became precious. And that's why for the first century, most believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, were slaves, working class people, just ordinary people. They had nothing to offer society, really. In fact, just yesterday, we were leaving town after doing some outreach, and we were discussing men and women that have made a difference in Britain since the Reformation. And to the best of our knowledge, we couldn't think of one working class man, one working class woman that made a difference, rightly or wrongly, those that stepped forward to the mark, those that decided to take a stand, not necessarily concerning the salvation of their souls or not necessarily in reference to honouring the Saviour, but just those that wanted to challenge the system, for the most part were either middle class, upper middle class, upper class, lower upper class, not one working class man or woman. And yet Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a very humble life, lived a very difficult life, was able to mix with everyday people in ways that we probably couldn't. He could understand what it was like to suffer, I mean really suffer. On many occasions it says he had nowhere to lay his head. On many occasions it says that he slept out in the open. He would pray all night from different mountains and yet as of right now the American president, a billionaire, claims to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Queen of England, a billionaire, claims to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Prime Minister, a very wealthy woman married to a very wealthy man, claims to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, today is Sunday. She's at church right now, the Prime Minister. The Queen of England is at church, either in Sandringham or Windsor Castle. The American President will no doubt be going off to church somewhere today in Washington. All these people claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, could they relate to him? No. And yet, he could relate to them. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verse 24, please. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth a prize, so run that ye may obtain service for the Saviour. Your salvation is a free gift. You can't miss that, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We know that. But when it comes to service, when it comes to making a difference, it's going to cost you something. Look at 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. 
there was a well-known Russian tennis player who was interviewed, I think two or three years ago, and she said this, that when she was four, five or six, every morning, her and her father would head off at five o'clock in the morning to a local park outside of Moscow and she would play tennis with her father. Her father was her coach, incidentally. And from 5 a.m. to or till around 8 a.m., she was playing tennis with her father. Five days a week, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week, 5 a.m. till 8 a.m. For 10 years, she had no childhood. Now she's one of the greatest tennis players in the world. There was another account I read about some years ago concerning probably one of America's most famous pianists slash uh, composers. And he would uh, be forced by his father to play the piano every morning, like six, seven days a week. And he would learn to play Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. And he could see his friends out of the window playing football in the street. And he would say to his parents, especially his father, can I go and play with my friends? And his father would say, no, you keep on playing. One day you'll be one of the one of the greatest pianists in the world, and of course that is what became a reality. He still is, although he's retired now. One of the greatest pianists or composers in the world. There was a chap who entered the Olympics um, in London, 2012, and he spent years practicing to become the greatest swimmer of all time. And he too would get up five o'clock in the morning, swim for three or four hours, five, six, seven days a week, go home, get dressed, go to school. And then after school, do it all over again for five, 10, sometimes 15 years. You see, we watch such people and we enjoy what we see if we have any appreciation of such uh, sports people. But we don't appreciate the work that goes into making such people the best of the best. I remember many years ago, I was making an album and I invited some of my friends to come along to the recording studio that I was working at. And they turned up thinking that it would take half an hour. No more than an hour. Eight hours later, we were still working. And at the end of a very long day, after recording two or three songs, we all broke up to go our own ways. I wanted to go home and have some dinner and get changed. And after my dinner... I sent a text to a friend of mine saying, uh, we're going back to the studio to now mix what we have just recorded. Do you want to come back? He said, absolutely not. I'm exhausted. He had no idea how much work went into making an album. Most people have no idea that a typical movie takes 18 months from start to end. You've got to cast your crew. You have to write the script or two. You then have to pick the location out. You have to then shoot the film. And then once it's finished, you have to do overdubs. The same is true of making an album. I can tell you something that to record a song or two is pretty straightforward, but it takes a lot of time to mix it. But here you've got a very clear theme about service. Every man, 25, every woman, concerning those of us which are saved, striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. If you think of an athlete or a sportsman, or anyone, like I've just listed, they live a very strict life. They're very careful as to what they eat, as to what they drink. They exercise all of the time. 
temperate in all things. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. Absolutely. This pianist isn't saved. This tennis player, she's not saved. This swimmer, he's not saved. But they spent all their lives sacrificing their childhoods to become the best of the best. And as a result, they obtain a corruptible crown. But we, those of us which are saved, and incorruptible, I therefore so run, 26, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway, concerning service, not salvation. And yet most of your reference Bibles, most of your preachers, Take this verse to be in reference to your salvation, which if it was, can I suggest to you as somebody who's been saved for 15 years that if it was in reference to your salvation, you'd have lost it many years ago. But I keep under my body, going back to being the temple of the Holy Ghost and bring it into subjection. I won't have anything or anyone to rule over me. He wasn't prepared to allow his flesh to get one over on him. Lest by any means, when I have preached to others concerning repent, concerning what to do after you are saved, I myself should be a castaway, going back to the judgment seat of Christ. That's the imagery found in Second Timothy 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Go to Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, our current book that we are looking at and will continue to do so for the next well two or three months i would imagine look at verse 10 one more time and i'll move on for we must all appear before the judgment seats of christ that every one may receive the things done in his body there's a word again body going back to subjection beat the air live a temperate life so on so forth according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad So 10 out of 10 of us are going to die. And even if the rapture comes right now, we will still be transferred, translated, removed from the earth to the third heaven. And we will meet the Savior and we will be judged by him. And he will ask us what we did and he will look at our works and he will decide as to whether or not they were the real thing. He will judge our motivation. Going back to your thought life, hatred is murder. Holding a grudge, gossiping, extortion, going back to 1 Corinthians 6, which we looked at last week, or Galatians chapter 5. All of those sins, which are very much overlooked by preachers, will be also dealt with at the judgment seats of the Lord. But let's move on. Let's look at Calvinism, because chapter 5 from 2 Corinthians is just loaded with material. Unlike I said last time, if you were to glance at 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or the, or both of them, you would have thought that Paul wouldn't cover much ground because this church was carnal. And yet, if you take such a view, you've missed out on so much truth. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Don't live unto yourselves. Why? Chapter 4, 17. 
For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Keep pushing on. It's very easy to become discouraged, disillusioned, depressed. You start off thinking that you will convert the world. And five years down the line, ten years down the line, you find that people don't want to be converted. I thought rather naively that when I first got saved, I could win everyone to the Lord. And here I am 15 years later, still trying to win people to the Lord. The scripture says that men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because the deeds are evil. Men loved darkness because the deeds were evil. We shan't have this man to reign over us. We're quite happy doing our own thing. 14 again. For the love of Christ constraineth us. We have to preach this because we love him. Because we thus judge. Paul, speaking as an apostle, who would go to the third heaven, who would meet Jesus Christ, who would write the New Testament, unlike you and I. Because we thus judge. Paul as an apostle, Paul as an eyewitness of such things. That if one died for all, Jesus Christ, then we're all dead. And yet, if you speak to a Calvinist, they say, well, this is in reference to the elect. Not the world in general. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. But unto him which died for them and rose again. Going back to verse 9. Wherefore we labour that whether presence or absence, like here or now, like the rapture could take place at any moment, we may be accepted of him. I can't stress this enough. The need to keep on going for the saviour. It could be through gospel tracts. It could be through street preaching. It could be by going door to door. There are so many things that you can do for the saviour. But here he died for all. That we, those of us which appropriate the atonement, should not live unto ourselves, but unto him which died for us and rose again. Now, let me say this. When it comes to Calvinism, when it comes to free will, when it comes to trying to understand the Lord's sovereignty, it's like this. The Calvinist underplays the free will of the redeemed, whereas the Arminian overplays the free will of the redeemed. Meaning this, that the Calvinist will say that until you are saved or before you are saved, you can't do anything to get saved. And they say this, that if you teach a person can will it, quote unquote, to be saved, they call that decisional regeneration. Such a term is absurd. The Armenian comes along and says that Yes, you can get yourself saved, but you have to keep yourself saved as well. Both views are incorrect, and yet both views continue to dominate the body of Christ. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. I won't spend too much time looking at Calvinism this morning. It's a very deep subject. It's a very divisive subject. People can fall out over Calvinism. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 9 if you will. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man, not just the elect, 
every man, go to First John and look, if you will, at chapter two. First John chapter two. First John chapter two, verse one. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So you see, you can't miss it, can you? Unless, of course, you don't want to see it. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So one more time, the Calvinist overplays free will. The Armenian underplays free will. And both, of course, are wrong. 14 again. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge infallibly that if one died for all, Jesus Christ, then we're all dead. You mean to tell me that only the elect were dead before they were saved? Of course not. Everyone is dead in their sins before they are quickened, before they are made alive. And that he died for all. Hebrews chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, going back to the judgment seat of the Lord. But unto him which died for them and rose again. And yet even that is lost on many people. And I know that this is a very divisive subject. I know that when you speak about Calvinism, it causes a lot of anger. In fact, this past week, I was able to finish my Oliver Cromwell article. And it's been a great blessing to research Oliver Cromwell, a Calvinist Puritan, referred to by one author as our chief of men. And there's a quote concerning Oliver Cromwell before he died. And I want to read it this morning. He's on his deathbed. He's not even 60 years old. He's been governing Britain for around a decade. A very brave man, a very unusual man, a one-off, shall we say. And he's on his deathbed, not even 60. It says this, quote, Tell me, is it possible to fall from grace? Here is a man who's been a Calvinist all of his life, moments from death. He was in poor health most of his life, incidentally, would suffer with all sorts of ailments. And as he is dying, he asks this question to a minister standing by, tell me, is it possible to fall from grace? What he's asking is this, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? Because Cromwell was a Calvinist. Cromwell believed in salvation. He believed in the eternal security of the believer, and yet at the same time, he perhaps may have been trusting in his works. Maybe he was thinking that he wasn't always as holy as he should have been, and incidentally, he would drink alcohol regularly, he would smoke regularly, he was quite worldly, he would indulge himself. He wasn't what you would consider to be a typical Puritan. I mean, a real holiness preacher, like John Wesley, for example, he would indulge himself. Tell me, is it possible to fall from grace? Of course, he knew better than that. And there are other quotes that this massive book that I spent around a year looking at, where he knows that he's saved, but it goes back to the old nature. It goes back to doubt. Another quote from this very interesting book. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the writer says this, Although he was heard to cry out three times the words from the epistle to the Hebrews. One more time. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Not if you're saved, it's not. If you're saved, if you know you are saved, it's not a terrible thing. In the sense of, might I lose my salvation? 
Yes, it's a terrible thing in the sense of, did I live for the Lord? Was I consecrated to the Lord? Did I really put the Lord first? That's probably what's going on in the mind of Oliver Cromwell. Tell me, is it possible to fall from grace? Of course, the answer is no. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. From Hebrews, of course, yes, if you're not saved, terrifying. And yes, it's also partly terrifying if you are carnal and you remain carnal. Paul says it is the terror of the Lord. But just two quotes from Oliver Cromwell. And yes, I believe he was saved. But at the same time, he was worldly. He was a very uh, well-to-do chap. In fact, I would say that he was probably too close to the elite. Going back to my earlier thoughts about those that have changed Britain for the better or the worse. Most of those men and women, middle class, upper class, I can't think of anyone, even right now, as I stand here this morning, that has come from a working class background and has been able to change the system. They've all been from wealthy backgrounds, very privileged backgrounds. Charles Spurgeon, he's very much thought of amongst Calvinists. In fact, most Calvinists think the world of him. Most Calvinists don't like to quote John Calvin very often because he is still very controversial, like Cromwell. In fact, Cromwell, unlike Calvin, didn't have multiple people put to death, whereas uh, Calvin had at least 60 people put to death. Not directly, of course, indirectly. But Cromwell, although he was a soldier... Yes, he put people to death in a physical sense, you know, like by himself. He also had people uh, arrested, primarily based on the battles that he fought. But Cromwell wasn't like Calvin, or Calvin wasn't quite like Stalin, or Stalin wasn't quite like Hitler. My point is this, you've got Cromwell and Calvin, both Calvinists, both Puritans, both into this tulip nonsense, and yet when you examine their works, when you examine their life, their legacy, it's a different situation altogether. It doesn't match up. Going back to that old expression, absolute power corrupts, power corrupts absolutely. Charles Spurgeon. Now picture this. Charles Spurgeon has been saved 30 years. He was called the Prince of Preachers. And there are still monuments in London, you know, that were set up in his memory, and I spoke some weeks ago about one of his uh, Bible seminaries, still open in South London, it's now a posset, of course. In fact, his tabernacle is still open for business. People still flock there every Sunday morning. But here's a great quote from a Calvinist. This is a great quote from the Prince of Preachers. Every Calvinist thinks the world of Charles Spurgeon. In fact, John MacArthur's chief of staff, Phil Johnson, runs the Charles Spurgeon Appreciation Society. I may have slightly misquoted the term for that, but Phil Johnson, MacArthur's chief of staff, is a huge fan of Charles Spurgeon. He said this, quote, May it be our happy lot to be numbered with the Lord's chosen. Let us pray then for the adoption and regeneration which will secure us a place among the heaven-born. He's saying this. He's saying, Dear Lord, Please save my soul. And by the way, I've only been preaching for 30 years. By the way, I've only been saved 30 years. He doesn't know if he's even saved. May it be our happy lot to be numbered with the Lord's chosen. Bracket election, predestination. Let us pray then for the adoption of regeneration, which will secure us a place among the heaven born. Why is he praying such a prayer? Why was Cromwell 
asking a question about could you fall from grace? Because Spurgeon, perhaps like Cromwell, was in a way that we don't quite understand, trusting in his works. And Spurgeon, like Cromwell, lived a very comfortable life, indulged himself in different activities. And here this guy, Spurgeon, has been saved for 30 years. And yes, I think he was saved, incidentally. And yet he doesn't know if he's saved. He's asking the Lord to adopt him and regenerate him. Such a strange quote. And yet Calvinists believe in predestination. They believe that Christ chose them before the foundation of the world, died just for them, and therefore they are secure. And yet that quote from Spurgeon, after being saved 30 years, preaching on the streets of England, unlike most people today that I can think of, preaching to thousands at his church in South London for many years, didn't know if he was even regenerated or not, didn't know if he was even going to be adopted or not. Cromer was the same. Is it possible to fall from grace? It is a terrible thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What's going on here? Well, in essence, you've got two saved people. And yes, Cromwell was saved, I believe. Spurgeon was saved, I believe. And you've got two Calvinists up in years who should have known better, somehow worrying, somehow wandering as to whether or not they were good enough, holy enough. Get that out of your minds. If you think you can offer him anything, you are kidding yourself. Look at verse 16 from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Well, of course, he's no longer on the earth. He's no longer a baby in a manger or in a stable. He's no longer walking on water. He's no longer feeding the uh, thousands. He's no longer raising the dead. He's no longer walking around Jerusalem, Galilee, Bethlehem. He's no longer on the earth. Of course not. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Of course not. You've been born again, haven't you? Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh. Well, Paul could just about say that. Although we don't know Christ after the flesh. We've never seen Christ after the flesh. We never saw him on the earth. Yet now henceforth know we him no more. He's gone into the third heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is waiting very patiently to come back. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Okay, let's break this down. You got saved. Now, number one, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, something which didn't happen back in the Old Testament. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ concerning the new birth concerning being born again. He or she is a new creature, born again. Okay, God has made you alive. He's given you imputation. He's given you something which you couldn't receive yourself. You can't work, earn, or lose your salvation. It's completely of the Lord. Old things are passed away, like your past, present, and future sins. Behold, all things are become new. You ask a Calvinist, for example, or an Armenian, for example, to interpret such a verse. And they will say this. The moment you are born again, you are now sinless. You are now perfect. Okay, that's what they believe. They don't put it in such a way, but that's what they believe. Or they'll say this. If you don't live like they live, you're not saved. But how do you know how they live? 
You might see a guy on television. You may hear a guy on the radio. You may read a person's books and say to yourself, what a great man he is. What a great upright man he is. Being married for 50, 60 years, four or five children, all saved. The, uh, the grandchildren are saved. The dog's saved. The cat's saved. And you think to yourself, what a great family they are. But you don't know if they are already saved. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Fair enough. Something has taken place, a transaction, something supernatural. Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. So Jesus Christ on the earth, referred to many times as the son of man in the Gospels. And yet Paul doesn't call him the son of man. Paul calls him the son of God, but never the son of man. He calls him Christ Jesus concerning son of God. And yes, there was a slight distinction there to be made. Let's keep reading on. 17 again. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Yes, you have changed. Of course you have changed. You've gone from being dead to being alive. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Okay, so the slate has been wiped clean. Something has taken place. We call that imputation. We call that justification. We call that adoption. That's uh, Spurgeon's word. Regeneration. Spurgeon's word. Something has taken place. Of course, listen, before I was saved, I wouldn't have done this. Before I was saved, I wouldn't be standing on my feet every Sunday morning doing a live broadcast. Before I was saved, I was very different to how I am now. I wouldn't stand on a street corner before I was saved giving out tracts. I wouldn't uh, deal with hostility on the streets before I was saved. I wasn't interested in people before I was saved. I went to church once a week and that was enough for me. But when I got saved, when I met the Saviour, then my life changed. I went from knowing of him to knowing him personally. But don't forget that text from First John, that if we say that we haven't sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. So yes, once you are saved, you are a new creature. You have been uh, given forgiveness, clemency, a pardon, call it what you will. Something remarkable has taken place. But don't think you are now perfect in the sense of being sinless. If only that was possible. Cromwell, on his deathbed, didn't know what was going on. Spurgeon, saved 30 years, didn't know what was going on. Just two brilliant Brits, both saved, I believe. And yes, they were Calvinists, unfortunately. And no, you weren't born again as a Calvinist. You got saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You got saved by trusting in his name. And once you trust in his name, he knows your name. And if you drift into Calvinism, well, that's unfortunate for you. If you drift into Arminianism, that is unfortunate for you. And just for the record, I've read quotes from James Arminius. And he never once said, just for the record, he never once said that you could lose your salvation. That has been put out by Calvinists to smear him. He never said that. But if you're not a Calvinist, you're not an Arminian either. Don't let people label you as an Arminian. So I think I will start to close today's message. I thought I would be able to complete uh, chapter 5 today, but not quite. We're going to go from Calvinism into the Atonement. And the Atonement, of course, is a very precious subject. It's a subject which is only relevant to those of us which are saved. Before you are saved, you have no interest in the Atonement. Going back to how it was for me before I was saved. I was too busy making albums. I was too busy doing what unsaved people do, like tennis players, like swimmers, like pianists. I was too busy chasing a dream. And yes, you can become this great swimmer, pianist, tennis player. You can 
win Wimbledon, you can win the Olympics, you can win the FA Cup or the Premiership or whatever it's called. You can be the greatest of the greats, but so what? If you die without Christ, you go to hell. So the judgment seat of Christ is really concerning an athlete. Typify that to a saved person being judged for their efforts to wean, okay? Not for being an athlete per se. Your salvation was dealt with at Calvary, not at the judgment seats of the Lord. Therefore serve the Savior as much as you can after you get saved. Because if you don't, you are dead a long time, obviously. Secondly, what you don't want to do is arrive at the judgment seats of the Lord and see just ordinary people like you receiving three, four, perhaps five crowns. And knowing your heart of hearts that you could have received those kind of crowns. It's not difficult to build up your confidence. It's not difficult to push yourself a little more. And if you don't want to stand on a street corner, I understand that. It's not much fun. In fact, just yesterday, we were working the streets, like I say, and these two homeless guys came right up to where we were stationed. I mean, right next to us. And I think one was slightly intoxicated and they were shouting back and forth at each other. And we had our megaphone uh, with John's gospel being uh, broadcast. And the atmosphere changed very quickly. And I thought this could result in a fight, not towards us, but towards these, the, these two uh, homeless guys. Very rough and ready chaps. And I thought to myself, who else does this? I don't see the Catholics on street corners. I don't see the Anglicans on street corners. I don't see the Methodists or the Brethren on street corners. Going back to being safe in four walls, being part of a cliquey system. And you ask yourself this, how about those people at the judgment seats of the Lord? What will the Lord say to them? But never mind them, what would he say to you? What would he say to me? So get the gospel out. Preach the gospel in season and out of season. Try and get your minds on Christ. Try and get your minds on the scripture. Not easy, I know. Satan will do all that he can to buffet you. He will send, as I say, uh, depression, discouragement, disillusionment your way. He will send sickness, distractions your way. In fact, I can say that this past week has been a very stressful week for me in ways that it would be difficult to explain in the last minute or two that I got left. But I've been very much buffeted this past week with distractions, starting off as small and becoming very big. And I can't remember a week like the one that's just gone by. It started off on a pretty positive note and it finished on a very positive note, like I say, with the completion of Oliver Cromwell, a huge article which will go online probably Christmas time. And yet, distractions, issues here and there, people trying to put stumbling blocks in my way, trying to get my mind off what I was trying to do, and also being uh, diverted down different roads, which I was unable to get out straight away. But praise the Lord, here I am a week later, and all has come good. So we have to keep on pushing on. We don't want to get caught up in distractions like I say but for me the great themes thus far from 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 judgment seats of the Lord Christ dying for the sins of the whole world and know the whole world don't go to heaven and I'll discuss that now next Sunday as we are almost out of time on top of that the groaning the desire of the saved person to live for the Lord I don't think Cromwell took any delight 
being in great pain as he was dying, questioning as to whether or not it was possible to fall from grace. He knew better than that, of course. And I don't think Spurgeon took any delight in questioning whether or not he was regenerated or would be adopted after being saved and preaching for 30 years. But it goes back to the old nature. It goes back to one's insecurities. It goes back to trusting in one's works. Don't ever trust in your works. As somebody once said, it's not how you begin that counts. It's how you end which counts. Much truth in that. Look at the tennis player. Look at the swimmer. Look at the pianist. Weeks, days, months, years of practice. And what do they say? Practice makes perfect. What it does for those people. But more importantly for us, we need to also practice. We need to discipline ourselves in a spiritual sense, in a psychological sense, in a physical sense. Going back to your bodies being the temple of the Holy Ghost. And I'll close it there. And next week, God willing, pick it up from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's begin, if we may, in verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And all things are of God concerning salvation, concerning creation, concerning everything. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ in the context, the body of Christ, and hath given to us, not just Paul, but you and I, those of us which are saved, the ministry of reconciliation, simply meaning this, the purpose to go out and win souls to the Lord, like street preaching, like giving out tracts, like getting up a sign, like going door to door, to wit, verse 19, which simply means to say that God, being the triune uh, God, of course, was in Christ, Christ meaning Christos, reconciling the world unto himself, not just the elect, but the entire world. Because not only has mankind suffered as a result of the fall, but so too has the animal world not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. This is an amazing piece of scripture. What it is saying is this. Number one, that the atonement is universal, which is remarkable. But number two, that as of right now, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, hasn't yet imputed the sins of the world to the world, which means quite simply this, that for an unsaved person who is in hell now, waiting the judgments, the great white throne judgment. He hasn't yet been judged for his sins. He slash she will get a chance to explain themselves at the great white throne judgment. So even now the Lord hasn't yet poured out his wrath to those that died in their sins. To wit, old English, like I say, meaning to make it very clear, that is to say, that God was in Christ. When we think of Jesus Christ, we see Jesus Christ as a man, but he's also God. He's the God-man, and that gets lost on a lot of people. In fact, that gets lost on most people. The Jehovah's Witnesses will spend much of their time speaking about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and completely obliterate the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Others come along and they focus too much on the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and bypass his humanity, his human side. He was God, he was man. The first Adam messed up. The second Adam was victorious. The first Adam was prepared to die for his wife. The second Adam would die for his wife, being the body of Christ, of course. The first Adam was Lord, lowercase l, over the world, if you will, over nature, over mankind, if you will. And he fell, as I say, he wasn't able to satisfy the Lord to his uh, very high standards. So the second Adam, being Jesus Christ, comes along. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the temple. He's Lord of everything. And he was tempted. He was tested. He was tried by the devil. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And he didn't buckle. He didn't fail. He was the first person to ever come up against a devil and be victorious. And yet, like I've said for many years now, when the devil gets his eyes on your eye, that's it. If we're not careful, we will stumble. And that's why Jesus Christ would say to uh, Peter that the devil has his eyes on you. He wants to sift you as wheat. And if that wasn't bad enough, I'm having to pray for you. I will pray for you so that you don't capitulate. You don't collapse. You don't uh, throw the towel in. And we talk about such as Jesus Christ being our eternal high priest. He is up in the third heaven right now interceding for us. On top of that, the Holy Spirit, according to uh, Romans chapter 8, is also interceding for us. There is a spiritual war out there which you don't really understand. Even after you've been saved for a long time, you don't really understand it. I mean, just yesterday we went to town. Uh, We arrived at our usual spot. We got the uh, bullhorn out, the megaphone out, put our SD card in, and away we went. And within five seconds of arriving, the atmosphere became very tense. Maybe a hundred yards away from us, there was this black charismatic church um, putting on a show like they do. Not just black people, but charismatic people. Um, Let me just make that very clear. Charismatic people, uh, Pentecostal people like to put on a show. A lot of music being played around the square. Very loud music, incidentally. Dancing to no mention of the blood, no mention of repentance, no mention of Jesus Christ. And their PA system was very loud, very, very loud. And therefore, we put on our speakerphone, like I say, our megaphone, put the SD card in, and the Gospel of Luke played for around an hour. And they all heard it. The entire square, the entire town heard it. And it was loud because of this charismatic crowd running around putting on a show. But the moment we arrived in the streets, the moment we put the megaphone on, the moment we started to give out tracks, the entire atmosphere changed. It's very hard to describe it if you don't do any kind of street work. But 18, all things are of God, like salvation, like creation, like everything. He is sovereign. Never forget that. Going back to what I said last week, how the Calvinists like to underplay the free will in mankind, whereas the Armenian likes to overplay the free will in mankind. And just for the record, yes, you do have free will. You may be a sinner. You may be born in sin. And even after you are saved, you are still a sinner. Don't ever forget it. I've seen several clips this past week of street preachers online. Always very interesting to watch. Some better than others, of course. And if there's one thing which continues to grate with me, it is that most of these street preachers are hyper-Armenian. And on top of that, they won't admit to those that they speak to that they are still sinners. 
What I'm trying to say is this. They offer themselves as being super-duper, like holier-than-thou. But they still have an old nature. In fact, I watched one chat this past week online, and he used the N-word very quickly, very subtly. It wasn't uh, something he probably planned to do, but he used it. I've heard other street preachers use four-letter words. It's the old nature, you see. And yet most people will jump on such an account and say, he's a racist or he's an unsaved man. Well, not necessarily. It's the old nature, going back to Oliver Cromwell from last Sunday. Is it possible, he would ask the minister standing next to his bedside, that one can fall from grace? Charles Spurgeon would uh, make the uh, case, would pray that he was numbered with the Lord's elect, that he would be adopted when he'd been saved preaching for 30 years what's going on well like i said last sunday it's the old nature and if you don't believe you have an old nature just ask your husband or your wife ask your son or your daughter ask anybody who's close to you who wouldn't lie to you and just ask them one day over a cup of coffee or a cup of tea how you are doing and if they are close to you they will say well yes you're born again and i can see a change in you but you still fail here you still fail there and accept it as constructive criticism. 18 again. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful word, reconciliation. Feeding into that text from Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us be brought together. I'll get to that verse in a moment. And hath given to us, the ministry of reconciliation. So you get saved. You want to grow as a Christian. Well, number one, read the scripture. Number two, open your mouths. Try and do something for the Lord. Don't just sit back and expect others to do something for you. I would say that after the word love in the scripture, the word that you need to be mindful of is the word impute. And I'll come to that in a moment. But Isaiah 118. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So Isaiah will make many statements back in the Old Testament. And I'll come back to Isaiah in a moment. And like all of the Old Testament prophets, he would be shown the first coming and the second coming at the same time. He wasn't shown clearly the church age. The church age would be revealed to the Apostle Paul, going back to the gospel of the grace of God, which, if you listen to most street preachers, they don't preach grace, not really. We all need grace, even after you are saved. You need grace. You need grace every moment of every second of every day. To wit, verse 19, that God was in Christ. So Jesus Christ is not only God, the God-man. It would say over in First uh, Timothy, God was manifest in the flesh. And he was. God took on human form, the incarnation. But God was in Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus means Jehovah saves. And yet, if you try and explain that to people, they don't want to listen to that. They want to offer themselves their own standing, their own works as something to be proud of. In fact, this past week, I caught a documentary and this Russia Crucian woman was being interviewed. 
And she said this. She said that we are judged by our works. And she quoted something from uh, Revelation concerning the great white throne judgment. And she was suggesting that somehow her works were going to please the Lord. That somehow he would commend her for her wonderful works. Such a foolish belief to hold to. Sure, you get saved and you are saved under good works, of course. But this woman, up in years, a member of the Rosicrucians, a secret society, a reverent, I should also say, affiliated to the First Methodist Church, was telling this film crew, all unsaved of course, that her works played a part, if not her entire hope, when it comes to being received by the Lord. I'll tell you something, I've been saved 15 years, and if you were to try and uh, convince me that works would play any part in my salvation or your salvation, I would say, don't waste my time. Only Jesus Christ was perfect 24-7. To wit, that God was in Christ. So God is in Christ. Over in Acts chapter 20, it speaks about God's blood being uh, spilt for the sins of the world. And I put that to a couple of JWs a couple of years ago. And I said this, who died on the cross? Of course, I knew they don't believe in the cross. They think that Jesus Christ died on a tree. So I said, well, let's ignore the actual mode, if you will, or the exact part of his death. Let's just put the tree or the cross uh, to one side for now. Who died for the sins of the world? Okay, And they said, well, Jesus Christ did. And I said, so is Jesus Christ God the Father? And of course, they said no. So I said, so therefore, in Acts chapter 20, it says that God's blood was spilt for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ has got to be God. They couldn't answer that. So God was in Christ, number one. Number two, Christ's blood is divine. Christ's blood is God's blood. Christ's blood would be taken up to the third heaven upon death in a way that we don't quite understand. On top of that, Jesus Christ is God. No matter how many times I study the Lord Jesus Christ and I try and understand him, I can't really fully grasp the God-man. All I can say is this, that if I was to assess him as just a man, he is so much better than I am. He is so much better than you are. I mean, just look at Muhammad. The last thing he would say is that he wanted the Lord to kill all of the Jews and the Christians. Whereas Jesus Christ, dying on a cross, would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just two men, moments from death, praying very different prayers. If I look at Jesus Christ from the standpoint of being God, I see him walking on water. I see him walking on the water for three, four, five miles. I see him walking on the water at four o'clock in the morning. I see him raising dead people. I see him feeding thousands of people. I see him giving sight to the blind. I see him restoring people's hearing. And I ask myself this, who else could do this? Who else has done this since Jesus Christ? And the answer, of course, is nobody. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. So it's like a search and rescue mission. What went wrong back in the garden, uh, we know, of course, is a catastrophe, and it remains a catastrophe. We are groaning, uh, chapter 5, for something to take place. We were told in Revelation to pray for the Lord's return, even so come Lord Jesus. So whatever went wrong back in the garden, like everything, at the same time the Lord is making it possible 
to put it right. Reconciling the world unto himself. Going back to Isaiah chapter 1. Not imputing. There's that word again. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. You think of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. He already has. And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Sometimes just sharing one verse does wonders. I caught a guy online this morning preaching at Speaker's Corner. And he had quite a crowd standing around him. Quite a brave chap. And he was repeating John 3.16. Which you can always do, of course. If you have a blank, if your mind goes blank, if you forget what you want to say. If you are overcome or overwhelmed by hostility or indifference or whatever it may be. Go to John 3.16. That is more than enough. You can get saved by John 3.16. And he was repeating himself several times over a 40 minute period. To a group of Muslims, atheists and others. And I thought yeah that's what it takes. If you believe in John 3.16 you are saved. But the great news from verse 19 is that number one. Almighty God has given you a saviour. Number two, he's drawn you unto him. He's granted you repentance. He has granted you repentance. Acts chapter 5, if you are a Jew. Acts chapter 11, if you are a Gentile. He's drawn you unto him. John chapter 12. So there's no reason not to come to the saviour. Going back to Isaiah chapter 1. Number three, he hasn't yet imputed your trespasses unto you he hasn't yet condemned you in the sense of destroying you yes we know from john chapter 3 that the world is already condemned we know that men love darkness rather than light because the deeds were evil we know that people won't come to the lord not that they cannot come to the lord but that they will not come to the lord so even now People are in hell, Luke 16, 19 to 31, and I mean hell. People are being tormented, but they haven't yet been judged. They haven't yet had their sins put to them, which means this. When the great white throne comes around, you'll have the entire uh, world, unsaved people, the wicked dead, being resurrected to stand at the great white throne judgments, and they will have their few moments to speak to the saviour but it says how every mouth will be stopped so on the one hand people are going to be able to ask questions if you will or at least put their case forward but it'll be you know it'll be pretty pitiful and also like i said last week there will be some saved people there those that died during the millennium who will be rewarded works not salvation like we are Rewarded at the judgment seats of the Lord. And off they go into eternity with the Lord. Let me suggest this. 90%. 95% of those at the great white throne judgment are unsaved lost people. And they will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I say. And have to. Or they will be invited to. Have their say. If you think of the gospel accounts. If you think of the Sadducees. The Pharisees questioning the lord jesus christ or pilate questioning or herod questioning the lord jesus christ very tense 
very tense. And if you think of such accounts, now many, especially in Matthew's Gospel, that I think is some, or that gives us some idea as to perhaps how it's going to go at the great white throne judgment. They will ask the Lord a question, and he will ask them a question. Always answer a question with a question. And within the first three or four seconds, such people at the great white throne judgments will just cower. They will just fall to their knees. They will just want the ground to open up and swallow them in. 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. There's that term again. In Christ's stead. In Christ's place. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. In the context, Paul is reiterating his credentials. Contrast that to the false Judaizers. Contrast that to the false apostles. Contrast that to the false disciples. Going around trying to intimidate the Corinthians. Trying to undermine Paul's authority. Saying that it's faith and works to be saved. Going back to that Rosicrucian minister, quote unquote. Arguing, suggesting that she's going to be saved by her works. That somehow the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be blown away by this wonderful holy woman. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what an ambassador is? Every country around the world has uh, diplomatic relations with the UN. Every country around the world sends their ambassadors overseas. In fact, during Cromwell's 10 years at the top of the ladder, the number of diplomats in Britain quadrupled. People from Poland, people from Russia were trying to get an audience with Cromwell. They wanted his advice on pretty much everything. And I made the case during my article on Oliver Cromwell, which will be going online probably at the end of the year, that in many ways he's like Solomon. Solomon had two natures, as would Cromwell. Solomon would entertain people from miles away, all around the borders of Israel. So too would Oliver Cromwell, who according to one author was a Jew, a saved Jew. And people were coming to visit Cromwell, asking him for advice, like I say. And for around 10 years, he was probably the sole custodian of the country. He kept the entire nation together. Very interesting man. But when you think of an ambassador, you know what such a person is. He or she is a career diplomat. He or she has been uh, in the civil service. If they are British, they've gone to the foreign office, they've had a lot of training. And if they get to the level of ambassador, there's nearly always a knighthood that goes with such. And they are sent overseas. Of course, the uh, top posts will be Washington, Paris and Berlin. They're the plum posts. They all want those posts. And once they arrive at Washington, Paris or Berlin, they start to rub shoulders with the elite. They start to meet those in power. If they are from overseas, they go to the palace. They meet the queen or they go to Downing Street. They meet the prime minister or they meet dignitaries. But the point is this. They are prepped. They are briefed. They know what they are being sent overseas to accomplish. They are being sent overseas to promote their country. A British ambassador 
sent to Washington is trying to drum up business with the Americans. A British ambassador who was sent to Paris is trying to drum up business with the French. A British ambassador who was sent to Berlin is trying to drum up business with the Germans. But from our perspective, we are trying to get people saved. And that's why we went to Cambridge last month. That's why we spent 10 days on the streets of Cambridge as ambassadors for Christ, trying to get people saved. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. So in Paul's mind, he's thinking this. Number one, there could be people in Corinth that were not yet saved. This epistle would be passed around, but vicariously. He is of the opinion, as we are at this ministry, that people in England are not yet saved. People around the world are not yet saved. Therefore, they need to be reconciled to God. They have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to receive what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them. That's not a works-based salvation. That is not decisional regeneration. That is simply receiving what God has done for them. Going back to Acts 5, Acts chapter 11, how Almighty God has already granted repentance. He's given you repentance. He has allowed you, if you want it, the opportunity to be saved, to be forgiven. Now then, we are ambassadors for God, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. So we take some tracks onto the streets. We get a bullhorn. We get a banner. We take a stand. And we speak to people. And we try and have a conversation with them. We plead with them. Going back to Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And we hope that some people will receive the gospel, although most will reject the gospel. But when it comes to the atonement, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ dying for our sins, one of the greatest passages in the entire Bible has got to be Isaiah 53. Go to Isaiah 53. Like I said over the last few weeks, the highlight for me concerning the uh, Cambridge outreach would have to be my 25, 30-minute conversation with some Jewish gentleman from London and Manchester. And I was able to show them Psalm 22, how they pierced my hands and my feet. And I was able to show them from uh, Zechariah chapter 12, how uh, the Lord's son would die for the sins of the world and how he would mourn over his only son. But I spent probably most of my Uh, 25, 30 minutes with them, looking at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, look at verse 4, if you will. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This has got to be one of the greatest passages in the Old Testament when it comes to the death, the prophecy of our Saviour's death. Surely he hath borne our griefs, absolutely, and carried our sorrows. Feeding into Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me all you that are heavy and laden. Burden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy so on and so forth. Yet we did esteem him stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. So I sat down this morning reading this. And I thought a couple of things. I thought number one that Isaiah is being shown. Christ's death on a cross. This is written 700 years B.C. 
But he's also seeing it quite possibly through the eyes of the apostles, who were also present. Five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. I mean physically wounded, whipped, spat upon, beaten, bled, bruised for our iniquities, going back to Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, bruising the heel, bruising the head, so on and so forth. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was whipped many times, which is what we should get. And I would suggest is what the world are going to get at the great white throne judgment. And with the stripes, we are healed in a spiritual sense. You can't suggest that the moment you are saved, you are completely healthy in a physical sense. I wish that was the case. It isn't. Paul the Apostle would have to dictate some of his epistles to his colleagues. He was almost blind. Timothy, Trophimus were sick. Many people post the cross, post Calvary that was saved, weren't in the best of health. Six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All without exception, beginning of verse six, and all without exception at the end of verse six. So one more time, Isaiah is a Jew. Isaiah is speaking about the Jewish Messiah. Isaiah is speaking about Jesus. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In the context, Matthew chapter 1, Israel. Vicariously, the church. All we like sheep have gone astray. Absolutely. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's a good picture of what you and I were like before we were saved. And the Lord, uppercase being Jehovah, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitutionary atonement. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Never once did he say, that's enough. Never once did he say, Father, get me off this cross. Never once did he want to find a way out. He would say that he had power to lay his life down and take it up again. Eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Before he died on the cross, he was detained all night in a holding center, some type of a jail. And who shall declare his generation? He wasn't even 50 when he died. He was cut off, killed out of the land of the living, Jerusalem. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. In the context, Israel and that's what is spoken of from John chapter 11, how he won't just die for the sins of the nation, but for the sins of those that are abroad, for all people. And that statement came from the mouth of Caiaphas, being the high priest that year. He wasn't even aware as to what he was saying. Nine, and he made his grave with the wicked, two thieves, and with the rich in his death, Joseph Arimathea, because he had done no violence. He would say, which of you convicteth me of sin neither was any deceit in his mouth and yet muhammad would say that most of those in hell are women this man was flawless yet it pleased the lord verse 10 to bruise him to kill him he hath put him to grief 
He would taste death for every man. He wanted water. They gave him vinegar. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed like the church. He shall prolong his days into the rapture of the church. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. When people say who killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Technically it was almighty God. Yes, Paul would blame the Jews over in uh, 1 Thessalonians. But Paul would also tell you from uh, Romans how the Jews are beloved for their father's sakes. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief in a very public way, naked on a cross for six hours. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. His soul has now been turned into sin. He shall see his seed. In the, in the context of the church, like I say, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's all good. And yet for six bleak hours, it must have been dire. This perfect man never sinned a day in his life, never had an impure thought, never said something which he shouldn't have done, was never unrighteously or unjustly angry. And yet here he is dying on the cross for the sins of the world. Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. So Christ as God and man. Would see himself on the cross. I mean picture this for one moment if you will. He's hanging on a cross outside of uh, Jerusalem. And yet he's also in heaven at the same time. He's watching down from heaven. As he sees himself on the cross. You can't really understand that. He's in two places at the same time. He's omnipresent. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. Yes he was very satisfied. But in the context, this is probably in reference to God the Father, and yet the Father and I are one. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. The Calvinist comes along and says, there you are, you see, the word there is many, not all. But they fail to understand that many times in the Old Testament, the word many and all are used interchangeably. My righteous servant, the Gospel of Mark, speaks about Jesus Christ as a servant. Paul would tell you over in... uh, Philippians, how he didn't think it was robbery to be made equal with God. I mean, it says over in uh, John 10, they took up stones to throw at him. Because thou being a man, makest thyself God. And I've asked the Jews many times over the years to explain such passages as this from Isaiah 53. They can't. Or they will say it's Israel. But of course, it's not Israel. It is a man. For he shall bear their iniquities, substitutionary atonement. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he was numbered with the transgressors. In the context, the two thieves on the cross, but broaden it to the sins of the world. And he bare the sin of many. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And made intercession for the transgressors. Intercedes for them. Intercedes for you and I. Go back to Second Corinthians chapter 5. So I read that piece of scripture to these Jewish gentlemen in Cambridge. And I made the case then, like I will now very quickly and say this. Who is he speaking about? He's speaking about a man. He's speaking about a man, not a people. He's speaking about a person, not a nation. Israel didn't die for Israel. Israel's sins couldn't be atoned for outside of the Savior. Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah 
of Israel. 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Precious words. For he, almighty God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. In the present tense as well. Who knew no sin, sinless, perfect, unlike you and I. That we, those of us which believe, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Imputation. So Christ dies in our place. He would taste death for every man. He would go to hell and back, literally. It speaks about him going into the ground, setting captivity captive. And the scripture says that if you believe on that, if you receive it, you are saved, you are spared, you are one with the Savior. But if you pass it up, if you reject it, you will find yourself at the great white throne judgment where you'll be judged. And I think one of the biggest problems when it comes to the sins of the world or when it comes to unsaved people is their pride. I think pride is probably the biggest problem when it comes to people not wanting to humble themselves and receive what the Savior did for them. In fact, pride is a sin. Pride is a sin like you see some churches around the world having flags in their churches. They're very proud of flags in their churches. They have flags outside their churches. They have flags inside their churches. They have flags next to the pulpits. And they stand to attention to the flag. They're very proud of the flag. And I'm not against being patriotic. Oliver Cromwell was a patriot. Nothing wrong being a patriot. But pride in one's country. Pride in one's flag. Pride in anyone or anything outside of scripture. Outside of the saviour. I would suggest is a sin. Salute the flag. Stand attention to the flag. Flag in your church. Flag outside your church. Flag next to the pulpit. I wonder if it's just too much. So 21 verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This has been a four-part look over the past four Sundays. And I'll just say a few things before we we, uh, wrap up this message and say this. That salvation is a personal relationship with Almighty God. But it's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to all of us as to how much we put in to such a relationship. You put a lot in, you get a lot out. Going back to the pianist that I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, or the swimmer, or the tennis player. They put a lot in to their uh, environments, into their worlds, and got a lot out. That pianist has played at Carnegie Hall. He's played at the Palladium. He's played all over the world. Those tennis players, or that tennis player, has played at Wimbledon many times. The Davis Cup, the Melbourne Open, another tennis tournaments around the world that swimmer has uh, played at three or has performed at three olympics over the last 12 years the best of the best but salvation is a personal relationship but it's up to us as to how much we put in as to how much we get out you put a lot in you get a lot out you put little in you get little out so i think we've seen clearly from scripture what the lord has to say about the Saviour dying for our sins, dying in our place. Don't allow any sin or any love of your sin to stop you from coming to the Saviour. Put your pride away. Don't trust in your country. Don't trust in your money. Don't trust in your industry. Don't trust in your church either. Look at the Catholics. They're very prideful, very proud of their church, like the numbers in their church. But so what? Numbers mean nothing 
like I've said for years now, the majority have never been in the truth. The majority have never been in the right. It's always been the minority. It would say many times how the common people heard him, Christ, gladly. But the majority, like the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, Pilate's crowd, Herod's crowd, completely dismissed him. They thought he was nothing special. And I made the case from earlier chapters how the devil has been able to blind the minds of those which will not believe. And he's done that because he hates the Lord. He was able to get Adam to fall flat on his face and he thought he could do the same with Jesus. And of course he couldn't. Jesus Christ was able to meet him at a duel, if you will, and knock him flat on his back. 21, one final time, and I'll close. For he hath made him to be sin for us in every possible way. And no, he wasn't uh, tormented in hell. He wasn't tortured in hell. He wouldn't go to hell to become the first born again man. That's a heresy. It was bad enough that he would die for our sins. He wouldn't then go to hell and be tortured as some teach. He wouldn't go to hell and have to be born again like you and I need to be. Who knew no sin? Unlike Muhammad, unlike the popes, unlike anyone that you can think of, that we, those of us which appropriate the atonement, those of us which believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, the just shall live by faith, might be made the righteousness of God in him. A supernatural act, going back to John chapter 1, how you didn't will it to be saved, you got saved due to the Lord's grace. He made it possible for you to be saved, and once you are saved, you are in the beloved, and when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ, and when he looked at Jesus Christ on the cross, he saw us. He saw our sins on his son on the cross. And that's why Jesus Christ would say, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Because for that split time, that split moment, the triune God saw sin for the first time in their own ranks. But after three days, he is resurrected from the dead and all of our sins have been left on the cross. And now... If we are saved, if we are born again, we are sinless in the sense of our salvation being atoned for, not in the sense of our daily walk with the Lord. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to cleanse us of our sins. So I'll close it there. And next week, Lord willing, pick it up from Second Corinthians chapter 6.